As we turn to Scripture this morning, let us pause and seek the Lord and seek His Spirit to guide us, we pray. Join with me in prayer. Father, we worship you. Lord, we pray that you would use the foolish things of this world to bring about your eternal purposes, and Lord, that you would use the foolishness of preaching that we might encounter you, Lord, that you would attend these words with your spirit, that we might see you and know you and devote ourselves to you because you are ultimate. There is nothing greater to love or to be loved by. There is no greater love for us to have than to know you and to love you. So encourage us with that this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel will advance to the ends of the earth unhindered. In the classic film, Jurassic Park, you remember the story as it got recently re-released? The first iteration of the movie that came out, you know, the story is that there's this man by the name of John Hammond who creates Jurassic Park, which is this uh, theme park in which he has cloned real dinosaurs and real dinosaurs come to life. And the story of the movie is that he gathers together all of these world-class scientists and he tries to impress them with what he has been doing with cloning these dinosaurs. And at one point, he tries to show them that they've got complete control. And John Hammond says this. He says, we have no trouble with control. We're going to have perfect control. The dinosaurs can't breed because we've cloned dinosaurs from dinosaur DNA. But we've cloned only females. All the dinosaurs are females, and so they can't breed. We have complete control of the population. And Jeff Goldblum Goldblum, who plays the character Dr. Ian Malcolm, is unimpressed, and he turns and he looks at him and he says to him, John, the kind of control you are attempting simply is not possible. Life will not be contained. Life breaks free. It expands to new territories. It crashes through barriers, even painfully, maybe even dangerously. And one of the Jurassic Park scientists says, are you implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? To which Ian Malcolm replies, no. I am simply saying that life will find a way. We can replace the word life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will break free. It will not be contained. It will expand into new territories and crash through barriers, sometimes painfully and sometimes dangerously, because God has determined and is bringing to bout the reality that his gospel will advance to the ends of the earth, and it will advance unhindered. But how exactly does the gospel advance? And this is something very important, I think, for Christians to understand, and I know not everyone here today is, but it is something very important for Christians to understand. Because over the 20th century, the dominant view in terms of how the gospel was expanding and was embodied by Christians is that many Christians embraced the attitude and the ethos of the culture 
And they just apply that to Christianity. So over the 20th century, our culture as a whole, American culture, was characterized by this, triumph- this triumphalistic optimism. That there is nothing that we cannot accomplish if we set our minds to it. If we devote ourselves to it, if we put enough resources, if we put enough efforts through better science, through better procedures, through better technology, there is nothing that we cannot accomplish if we set our minds to this. And Christians largely adopted that same mentality, and God did some remarkable things. But it was this mentality that if we set out to do this, if we're going to do something, and if we put enough resources, and put enough effort, and if we pray long enough, and if we pray hard enough, this is going to be wildly successful. But over the 20th century, two world wars, the ever-present genocide that is going on in some country in our globe, the pollution of our planet, the rise of terrorism, the rise of... um, Terrorism and and massive terrorism, the rise of uh, dictators, that view of triumphalistic optimism has started to wane. And I think one characterization of what that looked like, the triumphalistic optimism, without prejudice towards it, was really characterized in the pivotal moment of James Dobson's retirement back in 2009 when he said at his retirement speech, the battles that we fought in the 80s, we were victorious in many of those conflicts with the culture, trying to defend righteousness, defending the unborn, preserving dignity of the family. family. We fought all those battles. But he went on to say it is only a holding action. Now, he said 10 years ago, nearly 10 years ago, We are absolutely awash in evil, and the battle is still being waged. And humanly speaking, we can say that we have have lost all of those battles. So how does the gospel advance? It is not through a triumphalistic attitude and no disrespect being given there. But what's happened then for many Christians is that 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 has shifted that has swung from this idea of this triumphalistic optimism that, we are, that the gospel is just going to go advance and that the kingdom of God and Christendom is just going to expand in these monumental ways and it's just going to keep getting better and better and bigger and better and, and on to the, ends of, to the ends of the earth. And that has swung into this cynicism and into this pessimism and even into a despair. And this despair that, well, is the gospel advancing? Well, if it does, how does it advance? I don't know, but it's certainly mysterious because everywhere I look, the gospel gets thwarted by trouble. The gospel doesn't go forward is the perspective. And I feel, you know, many in the greatest generation, some in the baby boom generation, understandably, are grieved at the moral condition of our country, aggrieved at the erosion of many biblical values, and they look at what has happened in our country, and the view of this is to say, what has happened to the advancement of the gospel? It has continually been thwarted by trouble, and there's this attitude of pessimism, possibly even cynicism and despair. But the hope of the gospel And what God does in terms of how the gospel advances is advances neither triumphalistically nor is it thwarted by trouble. But rather what Scripture lays out for us is that the way that the gospel advances is it advances unhindered. We have no biblical reason to believe that every decade will be getting better than the one before, nor worse for that matter. 
Rather, what we have is that the gospel will advance unhindered, and it is moving towards a day of a glorious return when all of these things culminate in Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ comes back and, and, and returns in his fullness. So let's examine how exactly does the gospel advance. We're going to follow the last two chapters in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 27. If you recall last week, if you were here last week, where we last left the Apostle Paul, after all of his different uh, dead ends and the Lord redirecting his path, where he ended was he ended up in prison. And he was in prison for two years. And so now, Paul believes, Paul was, the Lord told him that he was going to go to Rome and proclaim the gospel in Rome. We're going to examine exactly how that happens. We're going to quickly go through both chapters, so stay with me. But what I want you to pay attention to is how is it, how does the gospel advance? Here's what happens. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitrium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, the Macedonian from Thessalonica. So what's happening here? They're down here in Caesarea, they eventually move up to Sidon, and they go out to set sail to come over to Asia to catch a boat over to Italy. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. How does the gospel advance, triumphalistically or without trouble? The winds were against us. So they set forth to sail. And instead of sailing like this, they have to sail on this side because the winds were against them. And when we had sailed across the open sea, we came along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, and we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and put us on board. So they eventually make it to Myra, over here. They found a ship in terms of where they're going to go that's going to sail from here over to Rome. Here's what happens next. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go forward, farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salomon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which, the city, near which was the city of Lacia. So what happens? They aren't going very fast. They're trying to go over here. They can't do it. They come down here over by Salomon, and they struggle to move across this small island. Here's how it begins to progress. They come here. They sail under the lee of it. They can't move. It takes them several days eventually to get over here to Fair Haven. So, since so much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, that's like the last day in terms of when you set sail because winter's coming, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury, and many lives and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, spending the winter there. So they are located right here in Fair Havens, and they're trying to just move probably 30 to 50 miles over to the port of Phoenix, where they can winter over here. Here's what happens next. And when the south wind blew gently... Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, 
They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Nor'easter struck down from the land. This is a gigantic storm, like a hurricane, that comes upon them. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Calda. And we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. What happens? They want to go over here, the wind blows them, and they are sent out to sea under this small island of Calda. After hoisting it up, the ship being like the rescue ship or a small day ship that's on the boat, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sardis, which is shoals off the coast of Africa, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began, to, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. How does the gospel advance? Triumphalistically or without trouble? And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, with neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. The storm is continuing. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Why does it matter that there was no sun and stars? Because they didn't have compasses, and that was the only way that they had navigated. So they had many days being in a storm without navigation. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Here's what happens. They've come out here. They're trying to sail to right here. They are blown out to sea. The storm continues. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When? The 14th night had come, adrift at sea for 14 nights, 14 days without food. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again, and they found 15 fathoms, how deep it was. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. They have now been drift for 14 days. They're landing up over here. They drop anchor because it's getting a whole lot shallower. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea, under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, what's happening? Everyone who knows the ship knows how to sail, is getting in the escape vessel and in this abandoning ship. The whole crew is leaving and letting the boat be adrift. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. What happens? The crew's trying to get away. The centurions get up. They cut the lifeboat away and they send it adrift at sea. How does the gospel advance? Triumphalistically? Or without trouble. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've been without food, and continued in suspense, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. 
then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay within a beach on which they had planned to possible to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them, left them in the sea. What does that mean? They cut the anchors and left the anchors in the ocean. Why? To loosen weight so that they could get further onto the beach. At the same time, loosening the ropes that they tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, that would include Paul, lest any of them should swim away and escape. Easy, if you get beached, you can take all the prisoners and retain your prisoners. The centurions weren't going to lose the prisoners and subsequently lose their own life when it became exposed. So the answer is, we're stuck, kill all the prisoners, save yourself. So what happens? But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest of them on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Here they are, set out 14 days adrift at sea in the ocean. They become shipwrecked without food, and they somehow land over on this island. How does the gospel advance? Triumphalistically or without trouble? After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Why was it cold? Because it was winter and they had been adrift in the ocean. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them into the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their mind and said that he was a god. Starts to describe the conversations that they had on Malta. And then it says this, After three months, we set sail. Why three months? Because they waited for winter to pass. They had wintered on an island without anything. They set sail in the ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as their figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. They finally let, let loose, they pull port at Syracuse, they stay there for three days, and then they move on. From there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Potioli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. How does the gospel advance? Triumphalistically or without trouble? They land in Rome. When they appointed a day for him, later on in the book of Acts chapter 28, verse 23, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. All the people started to come to Paul. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about the Jews, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. But others disbelieved. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense, 
welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. End of story. That's how it ends. The book of Acts is now over. It just ends. So we look at this and begin to say, okay, well, how does the gospel advance? Well, it's clear that it does not advance triumphalistically, and it does not advance without trouble. In Paul's life, here in this story, circumstance after circumstance is calculated to make this impossible. Paul's desire is to go to Rome to preach the gospel, leave Jerusalem, take the road, go to Rome, tell people about Jesus. However, he's taken as a prisoner. He's arrested in Jerusalem. He goes through endless trials. He's imprisoned in Caesarea threatened with assassination again, set sail to sea, nearly drowned after 14 days of no food. He's almost killed by the soldiers. He's shipwrecked for three months of winter on an island with no resources. He gets poisoned by a snake. How does the gospel advance? Triumphalistically? No, and not without trouble. Each step along the way is designed to prevent him from reaching his God-planned, God-promised destination. We have to remember that in ancient culture, the sea was viewed as primal chaos. It was an Old Testament symbol of evil, of, the, of evil powers that were in opposition to God. So when we read this story, we need to understand that this is not just the schemes of men in the nature, of nature that are against Paul, but it is the forces of evil that are mounting up against him. And the Bible is full of many examples of the devil seeking to thwart God's saving purposes of people knowing the hope and joy that's in Jesus Christ. Pharaoh sought to drown Moses. Haman, in the book of Esther, tried to annihilate the Jews. Herod uh, tried to destroy Jesus Christ by killing all the baby boys. Paul, Saul, was persecuting, persecuting the church and exterminating Christians. And now there is this storm that is seeking to block the gospel from going to the capital of the known world. The gospel advances, not in triumph, and not without trouble, but it does advance, and it advances without hindrance. And there is nothing that proves the sincerity of our beliefs like our willingness to sacrifice and to suffer for them. The gospel advances not triumphalistically and not without trouble. It advances without hindrance. And that is the last word, both in the English and in the Greek here, that the gospel is advancing without hindrance. Paul is under military surveillance. It is continued, but he has no ban. There is no prohibition on him to block his speaking. Though bound by chains, his mouth is open for Christ. Though chained, the good news of Jesus Christ was not. And each step of the way, Paul spoke the gospel with boldness. What does that mean? He looks for an opportunity, and he has the courage to take it. But each step of the way, the gospel advanced unhindered. It's just the pattern for the way the Lord works. It advances unhindered. In 2012 was a year of my life that the Lord... Uh, in his mercy, sought fit to crush me. Um, I had, we were, it was about this time of the year in 2012, um, we were about a month away from moving into our new building, it was supposed to be a month away from moving into our new building, which means that 
24-7 is spent, dealt with trying to move into a new building and all the issues that are arising with that. Um, we had just had our fourth child, so Holly was nursing around the clock, and I was helping to take care, especially the other three, other three kids. That fall, during the hurricane, I had, um, I had, uh, I had meningitis, I had viral meningitis, and um, my meningitis, I had a sustained temperature of 103.7 for um, over 72 hours, despite massive medication. And my meningitis converted to meningeal encephalitis, which is the meningitis crosses the blood-brain barrier and infects the brain. Messed my head up. Took me at least another nine months to recover from that, and I couldn't think straight throughout that whole season. During that springtime of 2012, um, with all of these things going on, uh, every person in my life that I was close to and who I depended upon was dealing with a major life altering crisis. Every single person was dealing with a major life-altering crisis in that period of time. In addition, I had um, my kids, one of my kids got pink eye, and because of the medication I'm on for my eye, eye issues at the time, um, it eliminated my, my immune response. And so um, my eyes swelled shut for 10 days during that period. They were blood red. I looked like Darth Maul, no joke. In fact, when I went to Hopkins to go in, they wouldn't let me in the facility. They stuck me in a holding cell behind a dumpster. This is true, in the bottom of the garage. And when I came through there, there was a garbage man who was there, and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm here for the red cell. And he goes, oh, it's over there. <laughs> and so I was put into the red cell to get treatment. And then after dealing with that, I had my, uh, I was backing up my computer, and my computer, I got the blue screen of death during my backup, which fried not only my computer, but also my backup while I was having this backed up. And um, while my car was parked, it got backed over by a state maintenance vehicle in its parking spot in that window of time. Um, and all kinds of other stuff was happening as well. And there was this day that I came home, and I was... I was being, the only reason why I hadn't cracked was that the pressure from every area of my life was so intense, it was like this balloon that was being compressed and being compressed and compressed, and there was so much pressure on it, there was nowhere for the thing, for the thing to pop out until one Saturday. I had a meeting um, with some people who were very upset, and understandably so, about some of the things that were going on in some other people's lives, and I came home, and... Um, I came home and I uh, came into the house and Holly made a comment to me and, and I cracked. Um, I, I had, I just emotionally cracked. Um, I had, I had and I, I had never been that angry as I was in that moment. I, I started experiencing emotions that I had never experienced in my life before. Um, I mean, I was, I was seething, and I was just seething, and I didn't know what to do with it. And so, realizing this, I said, I, I need to get away from people because I don't, I don't know what's happening right now. And so, I uh, went out in my garage, and I am just not knowing how to handle myself and I said, I, I've got to do something. I've got, to, I've got to focus on something. And so the day before, or recently before, my neighbor 
decided to aerate our yard. Nice. However, I have a buried dog wire, and he turned my dog wire into Swiss cheese. And so my lab had been running all over the neighborhood, and because Holly was nursing, when the dog got out, we couldn't go get the dog, and the dog was who knows where. So I said, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to fix my, dog, my fence. And so I start, I'm out there. If you've ever done this, you've got this little detector that's going, nee, 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 trying to detect your brakes, where the brakes of this are. And I'm on the front part of our yard, and I start to dig this up to fix it, and I am so angry, and I am so livid. And I just realized that the entire thing, which took me eight hours to put in, is just demolished. And I pop. And I, I started um, just sobbing uncontrollably. Like, I collapsed. It was just, I was, <laughs> I was having these full-body convulsions. Not pretty crying, like ugly crying, full-body convulsions. I was, I was laying on the sidewalk in our front yard, having these full-body, sobbing, wailing convulsions for at least 10 minutes. Fortunately, none of my neighbors noticed. (laughs) Or maybe they did and they just walked by. I don't know which one it was. And after about 10 or 15 minutes, I don't know what, I pulled myself up and I crawled to the front porch and I just sat there just sobbing. And... You know, Holly called Dave and said, Dave, this isn't good. <laughs> and I look back at that period of time, and it was in that exact same window, and in that same period, that in this church, there was no period where we had a higher number of conversions than during that period of time. And it was in that same window that our Lighthouse got ministry got started, that our ministry to My Special Treasure got started, um, that this facility got opened up, that uh, people, the view of our community was that we were a church that no longer existed in our community but started participating in our community. And there in the last 20 years, there have been no period in the life of our church where we had more conversions than that period, than that window of time when the Lord crushed me. What do I make of that? What I make of that is this, is that God has determined that the gospel will advance, and it will advance not triumphalistically and not without trouble, but it will advance unhindered. And in the midst of that, in the midst of all of that trouble, the gospel advanced unhindered. And when you look at the life of Paul, it is in the midst of his shipwreck, in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of winter, in the midst of imprisonment, in the midst of illness, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of all of those things, the gospel continued to advance unhindered. Well, what happened next? We read in the book of Acts, this is how it ends. Paul wants to go to Rome and he's preaching the gospel, and there he is. It tells us no conclusion. To Paul, no conclusion about what happens in prison, whether he's released or is he not, whether he goes on trial or not, whether he gets killed or not, none of that is said. So what happens next? Well, what we do know is that through the people that Paul was talking to and the people that he had witnessed to, people who had experienced God's grace began to act in response to God's grace and began to make disciples. And over the next 30 years, 
The gospel spread throughout the Mediterranean on the northern coast, on the southern coast, and actually went east over to India as well. And by the year 100 AD, about 30 years afterwards, it was estimated that there were about a half million Christians at that time. What happened then? Over the next 1,900 years, Christianity has continued to spread across the tracks, across the street, across the ocean, to the ends of the earth. In 1900, it was estimated that the population of the world was 1.62 billion. Christian population estimated to be about 40 million. That's a ratio of one Christian to every 40 people on the face of the earth. At that point in time, well, let's go forward. What happened next? 1980. And these, are, these, these statistics I'm giving you are from the World Christian Encyclopedia, put out by Oxford University Press. They are viewed as conservative statistics on these numbers. 1980, there are 4.46 billion people on the face of the earth, 275 million Christians. The ratio is now one Christian for every 16 people on the face of the earth. By the year 2000, the population has grown to 6.2 billion, 677 million, estimated as the conservative number of the Christian population. That has dropped down to a ratio of one Christian for every nine people on the face of the earth. They put out their stats every 20 years, and so I'll let you know in two years where they are after that. Currently, right now, Second, you know, the, the general rule of thumb is that roughly one-third of the population is professing Christians. Regardless of whose number that you take, it is obvious that we are currently living in the midst of the most rapid expansion of Christianity around the globe in the history of the world, period. It took 1,900 years for the gospel to advance, 1,900 years for the gospel to advance to one-third of the 14,000 people groups on the face of the earth, from 1,900 to 2,000. In 100 years, nine-tenths of those people groups now have professing Christians in churches, indigenous churches, and nine-tenths of the people group all over the face of the earth. We are living in the midst of the most rapid expansion of Christianity in the history of the world. Today, there are more Bible-believing Christians in China than there are in the United States. Today, the country that sends out the highest percentage of missionaries is Korea and Brazil. And what you see around the globe is that every other religion, Islam, Buddhism, take your pick, every other religion is concentrated on one or two continents, but not Christianity. Christianity is spread across the globe. Roughly 20% of Christians live in Africa. 20% of Christians live in South America. 20% of Christians live in Asia. 20% of Christians live in Mexico and in North America and, and over in Europe. It is the only truly universal religion. It is the only one that has broken through every geographical, political, and cultural barrier and is continuing to do so. Why? Because the gospel advances, and it is advances, it advances unhindered. It is the most powerful single force on the face of the earth. But yet I come back to my question, where is the next chapter? What happened next? Where is Acts chapter 29? In Acts chapter 1 verse 1 it says, Luke writes, he says, that in my first book, I began to record all that Jesus began to do. That was, in the Gospel of Luke, it records all that Jesus began to do. It talks about his life, how he lived the life that we, the perfect life, never sinning, never having a regret. He lived the life that we should have lived, but didn't. How he died on the cross and died the death that we should have died, but he died in our place, and he rose to, from the grave 
so that we might have abundant life and life everlasting. And the book of Luke describes this and how anyone who turns and puts their faith in Christ can begin to experience this right now. And the book of Acts continues saying that, that Luke was all that Jesus began to do. The book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do, and it describes how the gospel has advanced unhindered. It advances in two ways. Yes, it advances through the words of God's people, but the words of God's people and the witness of God's people are attended with the power of the Holy Spirit. Those two things join together so that there is this unhindered advancement, and through the words of his people with the Holy Spirit, people encounter the living God. So I ask you the question. Where is the next chapter? Where is Acts chapter 29? We sing the song, which we're going to sing in a few moments. We bear, the cho- we bear the torch that flaming, we bear the torch that flaming, fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Where is the next chapter? Where is Acts chapter 29? John Stott, reflecting on this passage, says Luke's description of Paul preaching with boldness and without hindrance symbolizes a, quote, wide open door through which we, in our own day, have to pass. It is a wide open door through which we, in our own day, have to pass. For the acts of the apostles have long ago finished, but the acts of the followers of Jesus Christ will continue until the end of the world and their words will spread to the ends of the earth. Where is the next chapter? Where is Acts chapter 29? Over the last couple of weeks, we have a church have considered how Jesus says to the followers of Christ, you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, across the street, across the tracks, across the ocean, to the ends of the earth. We considered Matthew 28, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of every nation, that a disciple of Christ is one who makes disciples of Christ. So we ask you, where is the next chapter? Where is Acts Chapter 29. Look around this room. Look around this room. Look at the people gathered here. Because you are looking at it. You are looking at the next chapter. You are looking at how the gospel advances and will continue to advance through the disciples of Jesus Christ who continue the mission of Christ. I was blessed when I went to seminary to receive a full scholarship for my education from the founder of the Generac Generator Company. Uh, He got his money because he founded the company and Generac's wildly successful. And in the build-up to Y2K, he sold off off the home generator portion of his business, which was a very good business move. And he took $70 million from that sale and he dropped it into a foundation. I was one of 25 people who were the first people to receive scholarships out of that initial endowment. Subsequently, he has decided to put more money in. He's actually put in $627 million into this foundation. And he has a, his strategy is that the foundation is going to close, I think it's on April 1st, 2035, is when the foundation is closing. And they are spending all $627 million, will be completely spent out by the year 2035. 
And so I had an afternoon to sit down with Mr. Kern one day and to get to know him a little bit. And I was just curious. I said, you know, what is your, what is your philosophy on philanthropy? Um, he was 90 years old. He was still going to work every day, and he had just filed a new set of patents for the newest generators he designed. Pretty cool, right? 90-some-odd years old. And so he says, I said, what's your philosophy on philanthropy? And he said two things to me. He said, number one, you need, number one it is very easy to give away money. It is very easy to give away a lot of money. It is very difficult to give away money well. Hmm. Lesson one. Lesson two. He said, I said, well, why are you spending it out? He says, it is the responsibility of each generation to fund their own philanthropy. It is the responsibility of each generation to fund their own philanthropy. And what he was saying was this, which he expressly stated. He said, it is not my responsibility to fund the philanthropy of my grandchildren's generation. And so he said, I am not setting up a fund, to f I am not setting up a foundation to fund philanthropy into perpetuity. It is the responsibility of future generations to fund their own philanthropy. And it dawned on me that it is not the responsibility of previous generations of Christians to fund the advancement of the gospel for future generations. It is not the responsibility of previous generations to proclaim the advancement of the gospel, to proclaim the gospel for future generations. It's not the responsibility of previous generations to make disciples for and to do the work for future generations. That if you are a Christian today, you are indebted to the investment of previous generations, those who acted in response to God's grace, those who made disciples of which you are now one. But do you get the significance of the moment of what we are doing here today? Do you get the significance of, the, of what the process that we have been in as a church? For what we are doing today and the commitments that we are making individually and as a church body is what we are saying is that disciple-making is not someone else's responsibility. It is our responsibility, therefore it is my own responsibility. Investing in the work of the kingdom is not someone else's responsibility. It is our responsibility, and because it is our responsibility, it is therefore my responsibility. Witnessing and telling other people about Jesus Christ is not someone else's responsibility. It is our responsibility, and because it is our responsibility, it is therefore my responsibility. And so what we are doing today is we are gathering together as the people of God and we are saying when we make our commitments before God and these witnesses, I commit myself to making disciple makers. I commit myself to bear the torch from those who have gone before that it is the responsibility of the current generation of Christians to proclaim the gospel in the current generations of Christians so that future generations would rise up and know it not the responsibility of those who have gone before. And we today as a church are saying, I am committing myself to this work because it is not someone else's responsibility but my own. And we do so with the full insurance that our commitments are not going to go forward triumphalistically, that our commitments are not going to go forth without trouble, but our commitment will go forth and the gospel will go forth unhindered. For as Bloomberg said, Life will not be contained. It breaks free. It expands to new territory. It crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but life finds a way. But it's not life. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the gospel is alive. 
the words of his witnesses, joined with the Holy Spirit, what happens is the, whole, the gospel cannot be stopped. The gospel breaks through barriers, sometimes painfully, sometimes dangerously, but it finds a way that the gospel expands into new territories. It crashes through new boundaries. And what happens is you can kill its followers. You can kill its preachers. You can close its churches. You can throw Christians in prison, and it does not matter because the gospel will find a way. And the gospel will advance, not triumphalistically, not without trouble, but it will advance to the ends of the earth. And so as followers of Christ gathered here in this place in southern Maryland, may we act today. May we act in response to God's grace and commit ourselves to making disciple makers. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and we worship you and we know that the gospel does not advance without trouble, but you have determined that the gospel will advance unhindered. So Lord, take our commitments today of owning the responsibility, owning the mission that you have given to us to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth for the honor of your name and the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. As we worship Jesus, it is his gospel, and we have the privilege to take it. Please stand.